Hey there, I'm Sam. I'm Preston. And I'm Jace. We are the Lit Knitters. I don't knit. So grab some yarn, settle down in that armchair with a book and a TV, and cozy up to the fireplace, because it's going to be lit. All right, everybody, welcome back to the season two, episode two of The Lit Knitters. Jace Preston, we are here in studio, and it's good to be back together again and talking about some more great literary film television-ish connections between stuff. So how are you both doing, by the way? Because this is the first I've seen you guys today. (laughs) Oh, no, actually, I guess that's not true. Jace and I, we had a class together today. (laughs) I'm good. Preston's good. Jay seems cool. pensive. No, I'm, I'm doing I want well. everybody to know, I know this is an audio format and you can't see him, but Jace, for the first time ever, he's got his hair back in a little man bun, but not really a bun. It's more of a man tail. Yeah. Warrior's wolf tail. Warrior's yeah. wolf tail, and it's phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've, uh, I haven't cut my hair since, like, November, so. Letting it rage, let, dude. Letting it go. Because I'm graduating soon, and then I won't have to worry about cutting my hair. It's stick phenomenal. it to the man. Yeah, stick it to the We should man. also mention um, some exciting news in Jace's personal life. Oh, Jace, you want to yeah. you wanna, yeah. you wanna make that announcement? Yeah, so what has happened He's is... having a baby. No, I'm no. just kidding. I was about to say, I'm like, just kidding. What? <laughs> yeah, so my, my wife, Megan, who is actually sitting outside of the recording booth right now Shouts editing to photos Megan. hey you know she got accepted into grad school at Syracuse University for a master's of public administration everyone so, chime oh, in everyone do the ba, 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 ba. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll be we'll be moving to New York in either the middle or like three quarters of the way through June so it's very sad We'll have sad. to. We might have to do this podcast remotely. Uh, yeah, depending totally on depending could. on how many of you share and like and subscribe to <laughs> this podcast on all the various <laughs> podcasting apps that you listen to. Shameless plug. Shameless yeah. plug. <laughs> Mom, please. Share. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> just do it so that we can keep Jace with us. <laughs> we can keep this podcast going when Jace moves to New York. Anyway, well, this has been great, and we're just gonna stop this banter and move straight into this new episode, uh, episode two of this season. And Jace, why don't you go ahead and kick it off with the title of today's episode. Cool. So the title of today's episode is Romanticism and Realism in War, 1917 and the Red Badge of Courage. All right. Some of you might be pretty familiar with 1917. It's been pretty talked about and popular uh, lately. It was uh, kind of a late of the end of the year Oscar season film. Came out, uh, I believe, November yeah, in December. Right. Uh, it was it was kind of a slow release across the United States. It actually didn't come. Uh, we're recording this here in Utah, and it actually didn't come to Utah until about two and a half weeks after its initial public release date in other areas. So, and I think it's. I was looking at it started in England. Yeah, it's, exactly. Yeah, it was first released in England. Yeah, so. exactly. So, um, but uh, so some of you who watched the Oscars might have heard that uh, this film was nominated for a ton of different Oscar categories mm-hmm. and won. Uh, for several, I believe, include one including at least I know for certain it won the cinematography yeah. achievements in cinematography, and we're gonna get right into that. But let's dive into this first segment of each and every episode of the Lit Knitters, the knitting pattern, where we lay out some of the basic information about each of the texts that we're gonna talk about and the common thread that connects them together. So, kicking it off with 1917. 1917 released in 2019 is a British World War One film which was directed, co-written, and produced by Sam Mendes. Sam Mendes, formerly the director of 
Skyfall, which is one of my favorite mm-hmm. James Bond that films. That is, yeah. That's um, uh, great director. Uh, the film follows the perilous 24, maybe give or take a couple hours, 24-hour journey of two British soldiers, uh, Lance Corporal Tom Blake and Lance Corporal William Schofield, who are each respectively played by George McKay and Dean Charles Chapman. As the film begins, the two soldiers are lounging underneath a tree in the faint morning light when they are woken by their commanding officer and told to report to one General Aaron Moore. As they arrive at the General's quarters, they are given the charge by the General, who is played by Colin Firth. They are charged with the task of delivering an urgent message to a Colonel Mackenzie, who is played by Benedict Cumberbatch, to call off an, a scheduled attack on a new line several miles away from where these men are stationed, to call off an attack that is actually a German trap, that the German army is luring the British army into uh, into attacking and making this attack, if not to be called off, would jeopardize the lives of over 1,600 men, which include, in the story, Blake's um, brother, Lieutenant Joseph Blake. Now, at this point, this is a spoiler warning, we're going to get into the details of the film. So if you haven't seen it yet, pause this podcast, go see the movie, then resume this podcast, because <laughs> we, we are going to talk later. about... Yeah, two hours later. <laughs> yeah, two hours later. Two hours later. And now that you're back, um, we will continue with the events of the of the uh, movie in the spoiler version. So, as Blake and Schofield cr- depart on their journey, leaving their battalion, they cross no man's land. They come across and land on the German side of no man's land and travel through a series of underground barracks, which they discover are rigged with booby traps and tripwire. And unfortunately, despite their their carefulness, the one of the tripwires is triggered by a rat, and an explosion almost kills Schofield. But Blake manages to save him, and the two escape from the barracks into the territory on the other side of this line. As they move on from no man's land, they stumble upon the ruins of an old farmhouse where they witness a German fighter plane shot down in flames and crashing into the barn from where where they are watching. Schofield and Blake drag the injured German pilot from the plane, uh, who's caught on fire and and, uh, mortally injured. Schofield proposes that they simply put the pilot out of his misery and mercy kill him, but Blake insists that they try to help the the German pilot. However, as Schofield is leaving and is attempting to get some water to help the German soldier, the, uh, the pilot stabs Blake and then is shot dead by Schofield. And Schofield then must comfort Blake as he dies in his arms. And promises to complete the, their mission, and to deliver the message that would that could potentially save Blake's brother. He also promises to write to Blake's mother uh, to tell her about the cause of his son's death, of her, her son's death. Excuse me. So Schofield, who's now left to complete this mission alone, passes through a long series of other dangerous and suspense, uh, suspenseful circumstances, and eventually arrives at the new line right at the moment as the erroneous and uh, dangerous attack is about to commence. He rushes through trenches and briefly crosses um, along the top of a trench right as the infantry forces are, are appearing above the trench and charging the German line. And he forces his way into the captain's barracks where he um, confronts Colonel McKenzie and demands that they call off the attack, gesturing and showing him the message that he has delivered from General Aaronmore. And McKenzie reluctantly calls off the attack. Schofield then tracks down Blake's brother, Joseph, and informs him of his younger brother's death. And then the film ends where it began, with Schofield then departing and resting underneath a tree that's now been illuminated by a sunset. 
rather than a sunrise. And a key feature of this film's narrative technique, you know, we've, we've outlined its plot, but the really fascinating thing about this film is that its cinematic method is uncut, continuous shots throughout the entire film. None of the film feels like there are cuts between moments of time or scenes and places. It's all happening on this continuous roll of film. It's quite remarkable. It's one of the reasons, obviously, why it won the Oscar for cinematic achievement. And the filming required just really intense and elaborate choreography of the camera operators, the actors, and the set and prop operators. And it this, this sort of mind suspense, it's very suspenseful, this, this film tech category of this continuous shooting, this continuity and gritty realism, renew and reimagine the experience of war with a really unique sense of horror, but also compassion and moving realism that, or romanticism. We're not quite sure which one it is, and we're going to get into that Thanks. later on. <laughs> but uh, that's 1917 for you. So go see the movie. It's it's phenomenal. I, I absolutely yeah. loved I loved it. It was very good. Along with that, I, I was listening to a an interview that Jimmy Fallon did with with George McKay. Yeah. George Mackay. Oh, is it George Mackay? I'm George sorry. Mackay, George yeah. Mackay. Because is he Irish or Scottish? or is he, He's British, like right? It's probably yeah. somewhere from the United Kingdom. I apologize. But uh, So Mackay. Jimmy Fallon interviews George, George Mackay, and he, and he said that they were... Um, they had to rehearse for months, for months before, before they, they even, even shot even anything. Shot, the, shot anything, and so yeah. they, so it was like like actually doing a like, I don't know, like you, you do this in regularly in films anyway, but like they really had to no nail to get it right before before they did it so they could get it right. Yeah, it was just crazy because they they filmed the, some of those scenes for over twenty five minutes. Yeah. To, you know, obviously, if no you kidding. really look closely, you can tell probably there were some places where. They fudged a little bit of a cut, but yeah. really, so many of the scenes are just seamless. And the camera yeah. work is very dynamic. It will move very with dynamic. the people, but it's not like a handheld camera kind of thing. Like it's not like a like a mockumentary in that way, but it is very like it's smooth, yeah, it's flowy. Like yeah, it's phenomenal. Yeah. Anyway, Jace, take us into the red badge of courage now that we've established this kind of ambiguous line between romantic, kind of sublime, beautiful, really mind-blowing portrayals of war with the gritty realism. Talk to us about Red Badge of Courage. Cool. So the Red Badge of Courage is a Civil War novel written by Stephen Crane, and it was published in 1893. So with Stephen Crane, he is a he's he's a transitional figure between realism in in, in American literary history and naturalism. Yes. And he and this novel takes has an interesting position in in that transition because he he includes a lot of elements of realism but also lots of elements of kind of like existential I don't know kind mm. of dread and bleak mm. I I guess like a, a bleaker tone with with uh, with war and everything but yeah. mm. but it was so the story it takes place a little bit before, during, and after a major battle in the Civil War that has been equated to the Battle of Chancellorsville, which was yeah. a pretty big battle in the Civil War. Mm. So it, it follows uh, an 18-year-old Union soldier named Henry Fleming and his experience with the fictional 304th New York Infantry Regiment. And the majority of the action of the novel takes place as they are gearing up for that battle and also following, much like battle. much like as much uh, like nineteen seventeen, it's just a short period of time, maybe yeah. 
24 to 48 hours of space of time. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and even, even and we'll probably get into this later, but even in the narration of it between chapters, like, it, it's kind of a continuous... Yeah. No uh, breakage of time. No breakage of time. Like, the only breaks that we see are, like, him... Waking fall, up Falling asleep and waking up to, yep. to, you know, the battle or waking up to people being around him and stuff. Mm-hmm. So what happens is Henry's regiment initially repels the advancing Confederates in their first battle... But what ends what ends up happening after that is, you know, they they get all, you know, I guess they're very very happy and like joyous that they've repelled the Confederates, but they immediately launch a counterattack that just totally takes everybody off guard. Backfires. Completely. And it backfires, and all of these Union soldiers in Henry's regiment start retreating and start running away. And a big part of Henry's character at the beginning of the story is that he he is trying to debate about whether or not he would flee in the face of danger or mm-hmm. the face of battle and he ends up being he ends up like fleeing the battlefield running into the woods totally deserting his regiment and goes into he goes into the woods and he sees a dead soldier kind of decaying and he also sees injured soldiers and he realizes that he did a bad thing that he kind of just Deserted his, he deserted his, his, his post, comrades. and he, yep. he really he wasn't as courageous as he thought he would be. And so he, throughout the rest of the novel, he uh, wants to make it up to himself and prove that he is a mm-hmm. hero. And he wants to be able to prove that he is worth being in the army. Because all of his friends, once he regroups with his regiment, all of his friends talk about all the crazy things that happened to them. In the, in the battle, but, but he didn't experience any of it. And the only thing that he has to say or has to show from his experience is a wound on the back of his head from getting hit in the back of, a, back of the head by a Union soldier yep. as they're retreating. Yep. <laughs> and so he... With, like, the end of a yeah, gun. Yeah, with the end of a gun. And he, he, milks, he milks that... In order to attain order his to red atta- badge of courage. attain his red, red badge of courage. He doesn't correct them. Yeah, he doesn't correct them because they ask him if he, if he had gotten, like grazed by a bullet or something so but what ends up happening happening afterwards is their regiment regroups and they attack the confederate soldiers and uh henry ends up becoming he ends up taking the place of a flag bearer uh, after the flag bearer dies and charges at the front of their regiment the confederates run away they capture some of them and then henry's just thinking man i was a hero because i didn't retreat this time so that's that's the red badge of courage. Uh, along with that, uh, an important stuff to to consider, especially regarding the, the the realistic nature of this novel, is that it was written by Stephen Crane, who was actually born in 1871. Which, by the way, is yeah. after the Civil after War the ended. Civil Just War. in case, yeah. yeah. So that was during Reconstruction. During Reconstruction, <laughs> yeah. So he he was not. Uh, a lot of people when they when the book was published believed that he was a veteran because of how realistically he depicted... But he was 24 years old he was 24 he wrote years the, old when he wrote, he wrote the book. It, yeah. And so th- that's been a big debate between critics is like, how how much can we believe the realism of this yeah. story because it wasn't written by a veteran? And a lot of uh, veteran writers like Ambrose Bierce who wrote An Occurrence in Elkery They did Bridge, not like this book. They didn't like the book very much because they felt like it was... Appropriating. Appro- appropriating their experience for... I guess literary or monetary game. Mm. Which, by the way, we should mention, is another one of the knitting pattern connections with 1917 in that 1917 is a story written by Sam Mendes based on 
stories which Sam Mendes heard from his grandfather. Yeah. Um, I forget his um, his first name. Alonzo Mendes, I believe, was his name. Yeah, yes, that sounds familiar. Uh-huh. Yeah. And Mendes, the director Sam Mendes, claims that these were stories that his grandfather experienced while he was a soldier in World War One. But again, scholars and critics of this movie have been careful to to analyze the not so factual events of the of the actual movie and whether or not two yeah. soldiers in fact were ever tasked with the sort of mission that Blake and Schofield were. So that's another connection that we're gonna get into is we have romanticism versus realism and we have honoring the memory of war and battles fought in, for good causes versus appropriating people's experience in the name of creating some sort of art art form. So there you have it. There's our knitting pattern for you all. Now let's transition into just the more free-flowing discussion <laughs> of these uh, various connections that we have here, a segment we like to call Getting Into the Nitty Gritty. Let's get down to the nitty gritty. All right, so let's start with this first pattern of romanticism versus realism, and let's kind of unpack those terms generally before we talk about them in application to the film and the, and the book. So... Who wants to kick us off with? Uh, Preston, why don't you kind of give us some of your thoughts about these these terms as like literary tropes, as literary ideologies, as philosophies generally? Yeah, um, and I want you guys to help me fill in because <laughs> as, as English, as we study literature, I mean, you go over these terms and they're kind of nuanced depending on who you're talking to. Definitely. Generally speaking, romanticism is this artistic movement, and I don't want to give it a time because a time period because it keeps on reoccurring throughout right. time. Like, sure. we still see it now. Um, it was very prevalent, however, in the 19th century. And the idea basically is that we're going to show life. A lot of the stories, a lot of the poetry in this time period was never about the present. It was always either about the past, kind of these elegies to, like, what once was, mm-hmm. or these things of, oh, I wish that the future could be this way. And so it's very focused in the ideal it's very focused in the, they're kind of these two veins of, uh, if you're a poetry nerd, it's the kind of the Wordsworthian versus the Coleridgean yep. uh, beauty versus the sublime. It's something that we talk a lot mm-hmm. about, at least in the classes. That's why Jace is nodding his head and <laughs> Sam is <laughs> Sam is validating. He's doing a great job of validating, you know, this anyway. But that's kind of the idea with romanticism. Basically, if you kind of, uh, this is a very... Professors may come out to get me, but kind of if, if you feel good at the end of a novel or if you kind of feel like there was this moral altruistic or this kind of beauty, altru- exactly mm-hmm. this altruistic beauty or this sense of just like something transcendental beyond your human experience, mm-hmm. that's probably a good sign that you've just been a part of a romantic piece of art. That rhymed. Uh, Bars. So then really quick, yeah, yeah, spitting rhymes. Um, so <laughs> so the, the kind of realism is just basically the opposite. At the end of the, the 19th century, and again, we still see this, so I don't want to give a time period, but basically at the end of the 19th century, people were getting tired of hearing stories about things that weren't really there. So they were tired of hearing about idealism. They wanted stories that got more into the nitty gritty, of, <laughs> like we are, right now. <laughs> uh, of, of life that showed kind of the, <laughs> the the everyday life, real experiences, real emotions. So that's kind of my general overview. You guys can add whatever you'd like. Yeah, Jace, what do you? What yeah. are you, anything you'd add? So just a quick thing with realism, uh, along with what Preston said, an important figure during the realist movement is William Dean Howells, and he wrote an essay called The Editor's Study, where he Mm -hmm. said that 
uh, what romanticism was was a grasshopper that was made of paper made of paper mache and wires and, and it's, it's presented like beautifully pristinely like, beautiful perfect and he says that realism on the other, the other hand is the hopping around grasshopper who like you can actually hold it you in can your actually hand, hold in your hand it's kind of gross it's, yeah. and creepy yeah, it's like it's it's like <laughs> the, the eyes are like bulging thing. at it's you like, yeah. Yeah. yeah so so yeah so like a, lot, it's a good metaphor yeah it's a good metaphor and and that's i feel like he he defines it pretty defines the di- the difference pretty well even though he is pretty biased because he was a realist writer yeah like he he shows that like what Preston said he shows the idealized grasshopper the idealized reality and the like actual what i guess what what most people would consider real things so. definitely the only other thing i'll add before we get into some specific discussions and possibly debates about <laughs> the romanticism versus the realism of these two texts is um what preston mentioned regarding referring to the sublime versus the beautiful and i think one really important thing when we think about romanticized things we tend to think about them in the uh, mainly positive sense that what a romantic notion that would be so great uh, idealistic optimistic thing but the sublime as a term actually refers to things that are both frighteningly beautiful like frighteningly so or frighteningly terrifying you know in, in a kind of weird beautiful way yes, like exactly it's this awesome shocking sort yes, of yeah. experience that gets you out of yourself i mean we've talked about the sublime on this podcast before with our episode about um about breaking bad and the fa- and oh, dr yeah. faustus so yeah. if you want to hear some more discussions about the sublime you can refer go back to that episode but yes that romanticism was was and especially in the coleridgean vein of romanticism as we talk about it's it's not so much this tranquil peace recollecting moments of of transcendence and moments of quietness which is wordsworth coleridge was it's the awesome and the sublime can be this terrifying force which war in many regards is that very thing so that's going to be an important distinction that we make as we move into you know the discussion of these two things and and to to add to that too realism might also carry a similarly kind of stereotype notion of dark and gritty and completely pessimistic writing. But really, realism can be quite moving and positive, but also boring. Like, it portrays the mundane, kind of humdrum everydayness of yeah, life. Slice much, of life. You know. Yeah, slice of life in, in all of its forms. So, again, laying bare both the kind of general understandings of these terms as well as some common misconceptions about what they might mean or do. So let's jump into maybe which one would you guys like to talk about first? 1917 or Ridge Badge of Courage or maybe both? I think if we just attack it from kind of I, I, like we were disagreeing before the podcast. Sam and yeah, I, we, it's, it's not maybe we should, we'll take you into this discussion right now. I yeah, I was going to say like, why not? Just like, <laughs> so here's, here's, here's where I'm going to, I'm going to start this conversation before we got on the air, everybody. Um, we, we knew that we wanted to have this sort of discussion about, I had to bridle myself and, and the realism. We wanted to give it to you guys. Yes, first, right? and and as we were talking, we um, the the point was brought up that 1917 is quite romantic and uh, in its kind of very beautiful, amazing, stunning cinematic quality. That it's just this really stunningly filmed and shot, costumed movie. It could be argued that that's it could kind of, be we, argued. this is kind of like for us to debate, right? Yes, it's and like, this is our debate. This is this is where I'm laying the the foundation for the debate. And I take I take somewhat not issue with that. I understand that by the definition of of beautiful in terms of terrifying gore and horror, you could say that what is shown in 1917 is romantic. But 
I also feel like 1917 is, and this is just my general, this would be like my hot take about the movie. I feel like this, that this movie gives the most pal, not palatable. I would say it's not palatable, but it gives the most Mm -hmm. intimate expression of what the horror of war would be like for one soldier in one day. It's not like a saving private Ryan that portrays this kind of epic, like almost Odysseus like quest in order to gain some goal, you know, or to achieve something. And to add to that, it is a solitary experience, which gives it more of that loneliness. If you're talking about naturalism, intimacy. Sometimes it's him versus the world. If you guys want to hear more about like how nature versus man, that's all naturalism. And that's like when he's in the river, Mm. he's he's battling not only the German army but he's battling a lot of the elements yeah exactly yeah. Anyway, and the uncaring nature and so that that aligns the 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 movie very strongly with realism on the other hand i see the argument being made for this romantic notions because there are scenes in the movie where like i mentioned in the in the earlier summary section where uh, blake and schofield walk along and they're in this ruined farm farm farmstead that's got these beautiful cherry trees and it's sublime. It's beautiful. And they have this serene moment of peace amidst the horror that they just endured in passing through no man's land. And then again, as Schofield is floating down the river, like you said, he's floating down the river and he finally gets past the, the dangerous rapids and the uncaring way that, that the water and the, the flow of the river is just bombarding him. And without the river caring. by itself is beautiful. And then he, yeah, he arrives in that peaceful stillness of the river and Again, there's this moment of parallelism. Cherry blossoms fall, are, are floating, you know, from the air being blown by the wind off of the trees into the river. But then he arrives at the dam yep. and there's piles of bodies that are that have floated down the river just like him. With, so, which he then climbs upon in order to get to, to the escape. bank. And, and, and it would be one thing if they were, it's already grotesque that some of them are bloated if you look. Yes. You have like pale faces, bloated They've flesh. They've been decayed, yeah. Decaying. But then on top of that, you're just like, don't go near them. He's just like crawling sloppily, crawl- yeah, exactly, crawling yeah. over them, and it's just, it's, 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 it is, it's very intimate. It's very, and it's, it's really is this very visceral moment of these two tropes of art yeah. colliding, of realism and romanticism combating each other, and so I don't know, like I have a lot of hesitancy about calling this movie a romantic depiction of war and I think a lot of the criticism about this movie like I heard a lot of people being upset about how much people expected it to win best picture because they kind of rolled their eyes and said oh another war movie Hmm. you know what I mean yeah and I think in just the the span of years that we've been making movies in Hollywood we've gotten a lot of war movies you Hmm. know what I mean and so for some people I maybe that feels like it's more the cliche romantic making a film making a war film is easy it's romantic. It's easy to sell and get invested emotionally. That was in. exactly my perspective, and and I want to mm. disagree because right now, you know, the great thing about a humanities education, everyone, <laughs> <laughs> grandchildren, is that uh, is that you kind of like see other people's perspectives, and so I'm just kind of like affirming Sam's point about like why it's so realistic. To be fair, I I obviously I, I would definitely say it's more of a realism film if we're talking about two camps than it is sure. a romantic film. However. The reason I didn't like it as much was because you used the word Odyssean-like mm, quest. This journey, yeah. That's, I didn't feel like, it, it. like, especially because you know that it's coming from a relative through, down to, like, the director the chain of, of command, the film. Right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, this is what my memory's doing it, and I've pieced it into this perfect narrative where the person has 
literally gone through like the seven levels of hell. How many levels are there, Dante? I don't know. <laughs> many. The, yes, the different <laughs> levels of hell and somehow like beat everything. Yeah. And, and and then he's like alive at the end still. And and that's kind of what bothered me, I guess. It's, is it's like, almost less realistic that he managed to accomplish the mission. And then you know that it's coming from a story. And then it's kind of like you're yeah. saying that it's based on a true story. But like, what does that really mean? Mm-hmm. It just kind of seems more of, again, the quest kind of like I had this goal. There was problems along the way. I ran into a mother and the baby and I was able yep. to like preserve the sanctity of life and, and while I was running aimlessly through like the ruins of a and being shot at and managing not to get hit by any bullets and jumping and into I the didn't river. die when I, yeah I didn't die when my gear you know he's wearing all this heavy gear mm-hmm. I, I didn't drown right. which happened a lot when yeah. if you dive into water you can't float because definitely. you're wearing really heavy gear. anyway so that's like where I'm coming from yeah. but I definitely would agree if you look at just the grit I mean there is nothing sublime about putting your hand into somebody's chest cavity when you're you have a ever cut. yeah yeah and, and then on top of that you have a cut mm-hmm. yeah it's so, one of the most disgusting like uncomfortable moments of the film jace you've been nodding yeah, 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 yes yes yeah. no, no, no. and i know i need to like no, let I, you talk so I go t- no, thank I you i concur with everything that's been said oh no don't concur man yeah, exactly. no no i like one i, I like hearing both sides i really i i i agree to a lot of different points that all of you've been saying yeah um I don't know. I guess I could push back. Push back. Push, push back. back. We got to bring in red battery. Yeah, bring bring us bring us home into some 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 different uh, alternative. So or whatever. Points. Like I don't know. No, like, <laughs> like here the thing. Like I I agree with what Preston said in that uh, the narrative of 1917 kind of falls into what we were talking about with the Grendel episode. It falls into the kind of typical. Hero's journey. Hero journey. Yeah. Oh right. Yeah, yeah, like because you have this the reluctant, reluctant to accomplish the yeah. mission. The Grendel yeah. one was last week, by the way. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, we, we've got plug, we've plug. got the reluctant hero in Schofield. Like he doesn't want to go with Blake anyway. Mm-hmm. He gets this call to action, and goes, he's got to deal with. He's got to deal with it. And he, he has, ends up being the best. He ends up being <laughs> the best person at the end. He ends, well, he ends up being the hero at the end. Yep. And ends up saving the day, and so I I think that that's where we can see a more romantic. Uh, like we, interpretation interpretation of the, of the of the movie. Yeah, and so I guess one thing that I would say, bringing in the red badge of courage, is that it's, in my opinion, it, it, when it comes to a narrative, I feel like it's more real to mm. what the red badge of courage. The, yeah, the red badge of courage. It's it's I can agree. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah, I, I agree that. with you on that. Because so in with the red badge of courage, we've got Henry Fleming, who he he wants to go to war because mm. he's heard people say how wonderful, how glorious going into war is. Mm-hmm. His mom is really reluctant to let him go, but he goes anyway, and yeah. and he realizes that even though it's such a awesome thing to do, like awesome in like the Yes, this romantic sense mm, yeah. to go to war and fight for his country and fight for the preservation of his of, of the of freedom. Yeah, for pres- preservation of freedom, yeah, the of preservation the, of, the of the of the divided nation. The ideals mm-hmm. that he's fighting. For, yeah, so right, he, he has right. the ideals that he's fighting for, but he realizes very early on in the novel that he is not as brave as he thinks he is going yep. into the war. Which is realistic. Which is realistic because, yes. like, you, 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 I, 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 I have, I love 1917. I'm, I'm using this more as just a way to push back, push I back guess. on yeah, it. But that's fine. 
but we we see this reluctant hero in Schofield jump almost completely jump straight into the action and just follow. Well, he is a little reluctant like going into it, but when push comes to shove, he does. Yeah, I think his turning point is when Blake. Yeah, when Blake's when Blake dies. Yeah. But there is that moment where it's right after they escape the tre- the barracks, and he's yeah. washing off the dust from his eyes, and he said, "Why did you choose me?" Yeah, yeah that's like, true. Why yeah. did Why did I get? Yeah. called to this mission because yeah. you're the hero and this is the yes and this <laughs> is the hero's journey yes <laughs> exactly it's a, nice it's a nice narrative it's a great yeah. narrative but like with, with with henry fleming he yeah like he he chooses to go to war mm-hmm. but he also chooses to to desert the army mm. and he did chooses to like he sees everybody running away and he sees all his friends running away and he has a moment where he's like maybe i should stay because this is what i'm supposed to do mm. but as he sees more people retreating from the confederate mm. soldiers he's like ah crap and I, he i'm out of here so he so he you know runs into the forest and yeah has has the moment where he's like yeah maybe i'm not as brave as i thought i was but at least nobody saw me be a, a coward exactly. and so nobody will know but i just i think that that's in my opinion a little bit more realistic to what somebody would feel like mm. in the war so I feel like yeah, like I feel like 1917, with all its grandeur and with everything great about it, does kind of fall into that rote role of what a hero should do when they're pushed into a hero role. Mm. Sam, do you want to say something? No, go. Okay, I think I, I'm kind of getting a reconciliation as we're talking about here. Yeah. This is perfect, Kate. All right, so there's like in in art studies, I guess I I don't know. You talk about form and you talk about content. Form Definitely. is the way that it's presented. Content's kind of like what's behind it. Mm-hmm. So if we want to use the grasshopper paper mache thing, sure. Like, I think this is essentially a disagreement about... 1917 is a beautiful movie, and even its content is really good. Like, mm-hmm. I want to watch it again. I, it, It's a very beautiful movie. It's a very good portrayal of mm. the realities of World War One. However, the content, if we're looking at it from a plot perspective, it's very rote. Wouldn't you say that's its form, though? Sorry. It's structure, right? Like the the structure of its Dang form, it. Sam. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. He's right. He's right. I, yeah. This is a good point. It's part of the form. It's part of the. Okay, but I guess what I mean is that like, the it's content messy, is the it? hero's journey, though. Yeah, that's true. And so I would say that it's romantically like its content mm. is romantic, whereas its form is more realistic. It's presented yeah. in a box of realism. True, I agree. And, and I, yes, I see what and, you're and saying, yeah, and that's what I guess I mean is that of course the structure is part of the, or the of the form, form, quote unquote. Yes, but I get what definitely. You're but I guess I just you're in that way, and, and that's kind of and, and getting back to Red Badge of Courage. I think if if you guys are still there, um, <laughs> <laughs> you haven't. The, the very title annoyed. itself is 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 I think a, a quest. You could put a question mark after Red Badge of Courage. Like I like it, that. It's, it's yeah, I like that. I mean, it's kind of it, it's 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 positioned in itself right at the. Like the the crossroads of this debate, yeah. Red badge of courage. I have blood. I'm stained. There's mm. that sense of sin. Yeah. Like I I. But it's good. But it's, it's courage. A good sin. Maybe. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. is this courage? I question love that. Mark? Like I, I don't know. That. So it's kind of like at the middle. And I guess this is anyway. Oh, that's yeah. fascinating. <laughs> I agree. And uh, what it's making me think is because I think I do have a slightly different opinion because I like you said. It's so 1917 is a beautiful film and it's so well filmed and it's captivating and you'd want to see it again. I don't want to watch that movie again. That was a hard movie for me to watch because I wanted it to end. I will say that. Yeah. I was just like when is it going to end? It's right. so stressful. Yes, it is and it's so suspenseful and I think I think in a way 1917 for me it it is 
and I, I think this might just be due to the different historical wars that it portrays. Nineteen, I think World War One for me is so difficult to rationally conceptualize in terms of its its correctness, like its needfulness to have occurred. Does that make sense? I think yeah. there are certain wars that we could say were bound to have been fought and were destined to be fought and should have been fought, such as World War Two. There's or kind of a clear Civil War. I was going to say or the Civil War. Yeah. But, but here's what I was going to say, there, though. However, war. there are many wrinkles to the Civil War. Like, are, what do you mean by that? Well, I just think that, I mean, there is a multitude of people in the world who view the Civil War very differently than you know, other people. And I, I want to hear, I haven't heard that before. Well, I, I don't, don't want to get into like, the <laughs> politics of this, obviously, but you know, there still exist many areas in the United States where people align with the idea of the, the ideals of Confederate America. Yeah. Like, yes. you know like what the, I mean? the, the South rising again. Like, the, yeah, yeah white, I, I can tell. Yeah, exactly. And I you're from to, Virginia. I was going to say, and I was right on the border of like, I kids wore Confederate, Flag flags on their the shirts time. and they had them in the back of their trucks with the smoke sure. and everything like and so i i think that both wars tend to have a little bit of conceptual kind of complexity and thickness that makes it hard to interrogate but i i i feel like and this might just be more also uh, uh the the idea of a film versus a piece of literature the films it's right there and you can't really close your eyes that's true and can't help but see war in all of its complete utter horror and meaninglessness and it's right there in front of you red badge of and i think literature in a way it demands that you imagine it for yourself and you can kind of subconsciously imagine something that's not as gruesome as someone else giving it to you does that make sense and so mm -hmm. i i still feel like <laughs> 1917 and I, and i know that there's disagreements but i feel like 1917 is more realist than the Red Badge of Courage. Okay. I really do. And that might be a recency bias. That might be the fact that World War One is closer to our cultural, you know... I like the stance. Cultural memory, yeah. you know? Yeah, I but, um, I don't know. Jace, what do you think? No, I like it. That, that, that does make sense. And I think that if... Yeah, like I, I've, I've nothing to rebuttal. Well, what is your stance, though? My stance? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> take a side. <laughs> take a side. Okay, uh... <laughs> No, I, I do th I do think that both the Red Badge of Courage and 1917 have realistic elements. They also have very both of them romantic both forms. of them have romantic forms as well. Mm. And one thing that the Preston brought up earlier, and I think he can he can take this from here, but there's a mo there's a moment in the Red Badge of Courage where Henry is talking, he's like thinking about the the Greek wars and like the, mm. the wars depicted in, in like, antiquity and ancient yeah times. and then that, that like that is an element of like romanticizing work because we like I think Preston looking to up, the past yeah looking to the past and seeing how the how I guess how ancient more ancient civilizations fought wars and how those wars were depicted by historians as being very very epic and like mm. glorious and mm. go to any like palace in Europe. And you will see, I'm sure that there are even, this is replicated, I'm sure, in some of our older buildings in the United States. Look at, like, people are dead. On the, actually, I'm from Virginia. State flag has somebody, it says, e, um, Six Semper Tyrannus. It means thus always to tyrants. And it's somebody. Well, it's the line that John Wilkes Booth said when he killed Abraham Lincoln. It's, it's, I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. But that's this, what he shouted in Ford's theater when he, when, after he shot right. Lincoln. And I'm not like from the Confederate. Well, I, I don't align myself with Confederate <laughs> ideals, but I will say that, th th look, that flag is a picture of a dead person yeah. with 
somebody in looks like Greek attire standing on top of them. Yeah. I mean, there's romantic. It's it's in one of our. It it's comes one of from the fifty flags. It's kind of, I can't remember the source quote material of that Latin phrase. It must be one of the ancient Greek plays or I something like that. I just wanted like to that. drop yeah. it to sound cool. Now you're asking about sources. Oh, it's so. fine. Don't <laughs> worry on. about it. If you know, email us and and we'll we'll correct it. <laughs> but I totally get what you mean. Yeah. And and so just with that being said, like, I, I again, I think red badge of courage. It's hard to. It, I'm interested in what Sam said. Mm-hmm. I know that we're. Get going along time, but Sam's point is really fascinating to me just because I feel like Stephen Crane, Stephen, Stephen. I heard yeah. one person pronounce it Stephen. I was like, is this where Stephen Curry got Stephen his? Curry. It's, Stephen. it's his great Stephen. Great Stephen. Anyway, Stephen Curry, Stephen Crane, Stephen Crane, SC. Um, he was kind of debating this. This, I, I, I read this novel and I'm just like, he is fighting, he is showing. This is what the American ideal of war was or is. Mm-hmm. This is it confronting what ideal or I'm sorry, what, what reality is, is, what realism is mm-hmm. exactly. And I so, and, and and so I guess you kind of have to read it with a backdrop of the the Peloponnesian, Peloponnesian War, like, like the Greek Wars. Yeah. The, you have to read it kind of coming from this tradition of like the, the fact that in both Greek and Roman mythology there are gods for war. There yep. are gods. For war, yeah, and they promote, and it's their and you pray their, to them to yeah. help you in war, yeah, to help you kill other human beings. Yes. Protect like, me, may yeah. they protect you. Sorry, that's a quote from Hot Rod. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> so th- there's a oh Jace is feverishly th- there's a, so there's thumbing a, through his no, book like, right go, now. Going so back you know. to your 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 comment about gods, like that was something that came up in the Red Badge of Courage. It was uh, yeah, okay, here. So it is in I think. Chapter two of the Red Badge of Courage. In case you want to turn to that, if you have it opened up, just kidding. We all know that you've been, you've been you've been feverishly rifling through your own copies as yeah, we've been talking. Yeah, it's, it's uh, falling apart, <laughs> duct taped, and everything. So this is this is this is uh, I don't know. I just thought it was a really cool connection because even okay, I'll read I'll read the passage. So it says here, and this is after I don't know. In, in, in this part of this the the novel, they are it's it's the first wave of confederate soldiers coming to the the union line so he says the the narrator says here the line broken into moving fragments by the ground went calmly on through fields and woods the youth looked at the men nearest him and saw for the most part expressions of deep interest as if they were investigating something they had that had fascinated them one or two stepped from or stepped with overvaliant airs as if they were already plunged into war others walked as upon thin ice the greater part of the untested men appeared quiet and absorbed they were going to look at war, the red animal, war, the blood swollen god, mm-hmm. and they were deeply engrossed in this march. So I feel like that's a good, like that that's a good passage to show kind of that romanticized image. Blood swollen. And to Sam's point, and to Sam's point, that's not like a positive feeling necessarily, but yeah. it's that's but it's romantic. It, but it's romantic, and it's it's very yeah de- descriptive, and it's this imaginative thing that that we don't unless you're talking about a mosquito, there isn't a blood soaked organism right that is bloated and big like what that image calls up in our minds yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah i i agree man this has been a fascinating discussion we're gonna have to rifle through the last point of the discussion that we said <laughs> that we would have before we before we wrap up which is basically this idea of honoring experience of war versus potentially appropriating it in art and i'm interested to hear what your thoughts are I mean, we've talked about the backgrounds of kind of accusations about appropriation from Stephen Crane. Do we feel that way towards 1917 at all? 
Um, in my opinion, no, because there's enough distance and time that like there aren't people, there aren't as many people alive. Maybe none, none alive that were, that even fought in World War One anymore. Yeah, that's true. I didn't care anymore. I think the last one died probably several years ago. Several years ago, yeah. And so I feel like since we're so separated from World War One, I, I mean, we just celebrated the centenary. Yeah, we just of World yeah, War so we mm-hmm. celebrated the the centennial of, or, the, or of the armistice the two years ago. Yeah, celebrated the armistice, mourned the the fact that it happened. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that that with with that distance and time, I don't think that it's appropriating. I think it does a better job of memorializing and and, and showing. Certainly, yeah. But yeah. with with Red Badge of Courage being published. 30 years after the, yeah, it's the pretty, Red Badge of Courage. And in the midst of or, Reconstruction. Yeah, after, yeah, yeah. With so. soldiers who are still alive. With soldiers like, who are still alive. And yeah. in the midst of a country that is not only reconstructing, but is already kind of sliding back into the divides that originally yeah. occur- caused the war. And that's what I was going to say earlier really quickly. Is like, yeah. You could argue, sure, that it was something that was that could have been avoided, but I think a large part of it was Reconstruction failed because certainly. Abraham Lincoln died, and that was like... Kind of certainly, anyway. certainly. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, no, but like I, I think along along those lines is just Crane wrote this story when the wounds were still healing, and he did that intentionally. And he I did believe, it intentionally, yeah. and I think that, that what's what Crane is what Crane did is very different from what I agree Sam Mendes does because yeah. he one is a yeah. tribute and one Sam Mendes film is very much a tribute. I mean, if you go see the movie, you wait until the after credits, and he says this is dedicated to my grandfather. Yeah. Who told me these stories? You know, there's no whereas, indication at the end. Of where <laughs> Stephen Crane, he feels almost a lot more critical. Yeah. You know, That's I think true. I think I think Mendez is doing much more of the honoring of, you know, he's not romanticizing what these men went through. He's honoring the fact that they endured this trauma, whereas Crane is saying something a little bit more sharp edged, like yeah, with it, with a little bit sharper of a tongue. Oh yeah, it's, it's very very ironic. Like yes. the whole book is very ironic when it comes to what what it means to be a hero, what it means to certainly serve in the military, and and that might have hit a lot harder to to veterans, vet, veterans still living. Still living, yeah. Certainly. I would say that that's a lot more like that's kind of been, I guess been my little thing for the last little during this episode is because it's positioning itself right between. Romanticism and ideal, or I'm sorry, in realism. I keep on saying it. <laughs> and realism, um, he is going to. He is challenging stories that these veterans have told themselves. Yeah, and that's that's kind of the issue. Is like, hey, the stuff that you came back from. Like I don't know, like anyone that's listening. It wasn't listening, what you thought. It wasn't, wasn't what, you, what thought, you thought it was. Yeah. It's telling somebody, like saying, "Hey, that traumatic it's experience." The rug out from under you. Yeah, exactly. However, you've reconciled that. However, you've come to peace come to grips, come to mm-hmm. peace with it. I'm going to now challenge that story while your wounds are not healed. It's true. And that's the difference. Because I was going to say, well, to some extent, film and everything is appropriation. Like, everything true, is appropriation. certainly. Like, what, give me a film that hasn't been appropriated from something else. Oh, yeah. And and I, I should, we, we should be, like, very careful here. We're not talking <laughs> about, like, cultural appropriation, but just more of in the it's general derivative sense of... from. Derivative yeah. is a better word. Yeah. It's derivative. It's It's... And in that way, like, if if and I don't again now I'm jumping back into sketchy water. But <laughs> if I as a as a white male write and direct a film on the Selma marches, mm. is that an issue? Because that's not my experience. That's not my ancestors' Certainly. experience. However, I want to pay tribute to all of the people, yeah. both African Americans and allies. Is that appropriate? Is that yeah? And you have to be able and and ones and I think it's very interesting that one's experience of the art can confirm that to people. You know what I mean? What it's mean? not necessarily in the artist's statement of 
I d- I'm not appropriating. I'm I'm trying to pay respects. Yeah. I think we gain a much stronger sense of the of the artist's authentic so. intentions of whether they want to be critical or they want to memorialize and pay homage to and honor from the experience of art much yeah. more than just their commentary on their own Very art. Good point. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes, it does. And so I think that um, hmm. to, to wrap it all up kind of with both, I guess, like I think Mendez, because World War One has faded now from our cultural memory in the sense that there aren't veterans who could compare – there, I mean, we have accounts of their stories, certainly. And the United States is only in it for a year and a half. I mean, yeah. if you go to England, it's a very different experience. Definitely. Yeah, very different. Yeah, experience. and as an American, too, we have a very different perception of, of World War One. definitely. But it this movie seems almost more like a, it is a it is a, a cultural, like, it's like a cultural heritage site, in a way. It yeah. is Britain's... So like a, good a, point. Like a, a monument. To yes, the, yeah. it's a, it's a monument, yeah. whereas yeah. Stephen Crane's book, I think, is more of a problematizing of war. Very good point. Does that make yeah. sense? Very and I think... Yeah. And they do so through these very mixed, hybrid forms of realism and romanticism, which That's great. is great. Yeah. And what a fun discussion that we've all just had. Thank you for sticking with us through <laughs> somewhat of a longer discussion, but one that we all loved and that was very lively. And um, we're excited to repeat it again. Um, Because we're doing this episode all over again. (laughs) No, about different stuff, but later on. We're excited. This is a practice round two. (laughs) Round two. Here we go. No, but again, thank you all for listening. Make sure to like and subscribe and share this podcast with anybody who you feel like would be interested in us. Um, You can rate and review us wherever you get podcasts. And we'll see you next time for the next episode. Until then, have a great time reading, watching movie and film, and thinking about cool stuff. See ya.